This is their new hoax. But, you know, we did something that's been pretty amazing. We're all feeling the impact of coronavirus. Today, Qantas stood down 20,000 people, and, of course, they're joining a long list. If I get corona, I get corona. At the end of the day, I'm not going to let it stop me from partying. Well, why, why the big secret? People are smart. They can handle it. A person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. Welcome to Nursing Review's new podcast. Each episode, we'll look at a different aspect of the pandemic, tackling myths, talking research, and keeping you informed. Right, and then I see the disinfectant, where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or, or almost... My name is Connor Burke, and this is the Nursing Review Coronavirus Podcast. This pandemic has changed the way we live immeasurably. And with that, many of us have been forced to change, whether that be how we socialise, how we cope with stress, how we eat, or how clean we are. I am in the latter camp. Prior to January 2020, I was quite the stereotypical 32-year-old male. I never worried too much about germs. I've never worried about touching things in public. My food hygiene was haphazard, and my hand hygiene was, at best, optional. But with the pandemic has arisen a borderline pathological need for me to control the environment around me and the germs. Hand sanitizer is standard, as is serious amounts of hand washing, doorknob washing, light switch washing. Any foreign object that enters my apartment is now subject to serious levels of disinfecting and quarantine. Perhaps most tiresome is how I now deal with groceries. I spend an inordinate amount of time sanitizing my weekly shop that gets delivered to my door. Everything is decanted from the bags, which are then thrown out. Packaged goods are sprayed and wiped, while fruit and veg is scrubbed in warm water. This is exhausting and stressful, but is it necessary? I still don't know, but it makes me feel better. Joining me to find out if I'm being over the top is food microbiologist from UNSW, Associate Professor Julian Cox. Julian, am I taking it too far? Well, Connor, I, I, I think I'd probably say yes. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I think a lot of people are absolutely feeling the, the stress um, and the risk and the concern about COVID-19. Um, and therefore, it's a natural response to want to try to do more to control and mitigate that sort of risk. So what you're doing is not surprising, but it's also probably a little bit uh, more than is necessary. And why is that? Because... Um, the risk of transmission of the virus, say, from the packaged foods that you're having delivered from the supermarket, is really probably much lower than you perceive. So the perception is high. The reality of the risk is probably very low. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, when it comes to the sorts of things you're doing, like sanitising um, the, the packaging, decanting foods, uh, there is some risk even associated with with that. So if we think about uh, treating the the packaging where perhaps the food becomes exposed to the the chemicals that you're using to sanitise, those chemicals may pose more of a risk to uh, your your internal system um, than the risk of contracting the virus from the packaging, for Mm -hmm. example. Well, uh, there has been a a few laughs in my house when I've you know, wash the top of a beer and then it's tasted a bit soapy because I haven't quite rinsed it afterwards. So that has been, uh, um, I do get laughed at a lot of the time for that. 
Yes, certainly there's a number of studies actually going uh, quite some time back before uh, the advent of COVID-19 that suggest that a range of the detergent sanitizers that we might use to wash things, if we apply those to foods and then ingest them, particularly over time, they can do some harm to to our internal system. So uh, it's best, uh, and certainly the advice from a range of experts around the world is, Let's take uh, fresh fruit and vegetables, for example. If you are concerned, uh, a good uh, wash under fresh running water with some rubbing action. Um, The the physical action of both that rubbing and the water flowing over the produce is likely to remove any risk that might have been there. And again, I stress that the risk of transmission itself is still considered to be very, very low anyway. Mm -hmm. So I think this all started for me was uh, just over December period, I got a bad bout of gastro. I'd never had it before. And kind of I then I think coming back to Australia and then the pandemic hitting really caused me to to look at how I interact with food and, and germs in general. So let's talk first about the ways in which we can get sick from food. Sure. Well, look, I mean, the way humans get really relates to the way we have to live. Uh, we, we have to breathe. So uh, taking in air, uh, and airborne uh, disease agents, you know, colds, influenza, all those sorts of things, well, that's part of life. Um, we have to drink. Um, so certainly waterborne disease has been a problem. And of course, we have to eat. So mm-hmm. it's unsurprising that, that foodborne disease is is also an important way that we become ill now really there's there's i guess two main ways broadly that we become ill um that's through eating uh, food that is merely contaminated so um, foods can pick up organisms from throughout the primary production and processing environment all the way through to where we actually put the food in our mouth and just a mere contamination of food can make us ill. So, for example, with viral foodborne illness, viruses can cause food, uh, food poisoning at a very, very low level of contamination. And, of course, viruses can't grow in food, but simply contamination with a very low level can ultimately make us sick. Um, in other cases, and particularly around bacterial food poisoning, we need to usually do something to make that food hazardous. Um, the contamination event itself is not enough. Uh, We have to maybe abuse the food with regard to time and temperature to allow for organisms to grow to a hazardous level, to a level that when we ingest the food, they're going to cause illness in our our body. Mm -hmm. And then uh, on top of that, basically food poisoning is usually um, one of two uh, main mechanisms. One is uh, what we call intoxication. So that's where organisms have been allowed to grow to a high level in the food. Uh, They produce a toxin, and it's actually the toxin that we ingest with the food that makes us ill. The other is infection, where an organism has grown to a high level uh, or at least to a moderate level in the food, uh, and we ingest the food. The organism is then able to survive through the, the hazardous parts of our gastrointestinal tract, so through the stomach, the, the upper intestine. And then um, when it reaches the lower or large intestine, it's able to establish and colonise and then cause disease as a, a fully infective process. So they're really the, the, 
the modes of, of or mechanisms by which we become ill through the ingestion of, of food where the food is acting as a vehicle. Mm -hmm. So uh, away from food poisoning, gastro and the like, can we get something maybe that's similar to COVID-19 in some of the symptoms? Can we get, you know, the common cold or flu by ingesting foodstuffs? So if we think about viruses uh, like cold viruses, and some of those are coronaviruses, some are rhinoviruses, there's a range of viruses that, that cause what we refer to as the common cold. And then, of course, we have influenza, the virus responsible for what we call the flu, when it's the real flu. Uh, these are all airborne viruses or aerosol-borne viruses. So the main way we would encounter them is through contact with someone who is infected um, shedding the virus and typically in bodily fluids and therefore when they sneeze or cough an aerosol is created that is laden with the virus we breathe that in we take it into our upper respiratory tract and depending on the site of infection it will it will arrive at tissue where it can actually cause that infection now we do know that some of the simpler viruses that cause the common cold can survive reasonably on surfaces and they can be encountered that way. But again, the risk uh, of transmission to us and infection is lower. And of course, it's also dependent if those viruses are on a surface that we pick them up on the, off the surface, let's say with our hands, and then we bring our hands in contact with key surfaces so that we rub our eyes, our nose, our mouth, and we bring the virus physically towards the tissues where the virus is going to be able to attach um, and invade cells. Um, so again, there's several steps, whereas when we're just simply breathing in an aerosol, there's a very direct transmission. So again, uh, transmission via aerosol is a much higher risk than via surfaces, and we can include in that surfaces um, of foods, for example. Mm -hmm. Something else I've been thinking about uh, before we, we got to talking, um, mad cow disease was huge when I was a kid. I'm originally from England. We didn't eat beef for ages, uh, and I actually can't give blood here as a result. That's how seriously you know it was viewed and still is. Uh, what exactly went on there? I know it was from eating beef, um, but you know what was different to that to maybe um, you know COVID-19 and the, the worry about eating food there? Connor, I certainly hear you when it comes to eating beef because I was actually uh, similarly in the UK right. uh, for work around the time, the, the window that uh, that mad cow disease was prevalent. Um, and so I'm in, in the same boat. And certainly I do remember having a, a wonderful roast beef dinner at a, a local pub um, and then coming back and thinking, um, should I have really have done that? <laughs> um, anyway, in terms of the agent, uh, Mad cow disease is, is actually not a virus, but it's actually what we call a prion or, or prion, tomato, tomato, um, which uh, is actually just a protein. Um, it's sort of a biological substance or entity. I don't think we could consider it sort of a living thing because it has no DNA or RNA, no nucleic acid, no genetic fingerprint. Um, and, and what happened in, in that case was that um, cattle were being fed poorly rendered um, animal protein, um, sort of a meat and bone meal, and that contained um, active forms of a, a prion, a prion, um, that we could call a rogue version of those proteins. Um, so in normal um, neural tissue, 
uh, particularly in the brain, we all sorts of animals, including us, have uh, prion proteins as part of our, our tissue makeup. Um, and what happens when we ingest those rogue prions, uh, they make their way through uh, the lymphatic system in the, the body, um, another, another system within the body, um, and then get into peripheral nervous tissue and actually are migrated to the central nervous system and ultimately to the brain. And what happens is, it's really interesting, it's almost like a, a viral disease, is that those rogue prions are able to interact with the normal prions in the, the brain um, and change the shape of our normal proteins to look more like the rogue proteins. Mm -hmm. um, and what happens then, uh, the, the tissue in the brain changes where holes or what we call plaques are formed uh, and that gives the, the brain tissue ultimately a sponge-like or spongy form pathology. That's the disease. Um, and as the brain tissue is disrupted, we lose neurological function, um, and that can affect all sorts of parts of our system from speech to our ability to walk to our ability to, to breathe or to think. Um, and ultimately, as that pathology grows worse, um, it can lead to, to death, but it's a very slow progressing disease. But that's that's the nature of the disease, these prion proteins causing a change. And again, um, while we refer to that episode as mad cow disease, collectively these diseases that occur in a range of, of animals, including us humans, are called spongiform encephalopathies. And that simply means that we see a sponge-like pathology in the, the brain. That's, that's all that, that fancy term means. Mm -hmm. um, and again, the, the prion proteins that come from a food source or even can be passed down genetically, um, they cause this change in, in the brain in our normal tissue. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we touched upon, I think maybe we, we more in general think about meat as a source of, of the ways that we can get infection or poisoned with foodstuffs, but um, are there instances where uh, fruits and vegetables can cause us a bit of strife? Oh, definitely. I mean, traditionally, a lot of people, if you ask them where they get food poisoning from uh, in terms of foods they've eaten, a lot of people do tend to think uh, straight away about uh, animal flesh foods. Um, but there have been a, a large number of outbreaks around the world over uh, the last several decades clearly associated with, uh, with fruit and vegetable uh, produce. Now, uh, they range from uh, bean sprouts to rock melon uh, mm. to leafy greens. And uh, in most cases, um, this is because of how they're grown, that the, uh, the produce is grown out maybe in a field and they're exposed to animals, to rain, to the soil, um, and they become contaminated with various sorts of organisms that can cause uh, foodborne disease. Um, so it's really unsurprising. Um, and in some cases, those outbreaks have been really quite extensive. Mm -hmm. um, so um, there certainly is wisdom in, uh, in getting produce home and thinking about giving it a wash underneath the, the tap. I mean, uh, I know I, as a consumer, do it routinely because... Um, guess what? Sometimes those leafy green veggies that have grown on the ground, they've got soil in them. I don't really want to eat soil. I don't want grit in my teeth. But through the action of washing those even under you know, fresh running water from the tap, which 
is chlorinated, that that physically and chemically will have some impact on removal of organisms that are there and therefore reducing risk. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm hearing what I'm getting from a lot of this is that the difference between ingesting um, any of these uh, or the potential of coronavirus is that it can't find its way to the respiratory system. Um, But so if we go to COVID now, has there been any proof so far that you know of or any um, kind of ideas that lead to the idea of transmission of COVID through foods? We still have very little, if any, evidence that uh, the COVID-19 virus is transmitted via foods. It's always a possibility, but again, risk is, is very, very considered extremely low. Mm-hmm. And if you think about the virus being present on the surface of a, a food, we believe that it would be present maybe in very, very low numbers. Um, then simply the act of putting that food into our mouths, um, masticating, so chewing that food up and ingesting it, the likelihood of that virus being, um, in a sense, released from the food and then being able to attach to a surface or get to a surface as we're swallowing that food and it enters the digestive tract rather than the um, the breathing tract, if you will, mm. um, then we, we don't have, um, you know, logically we think that there's probably very little chance of that happening. Uh, there is some, um, I guess, lateral evidence uh, that um, the virus can actually uh, maybe grow um, in the digestive tract. But it could be that as we're uh, producing virus during its normal mode of, of replication and causing disease, that it's growing in the respiratory tract and system, that if somehow we've got virus that um, comes up into our, our mouth, for example, and then is swallowed back down into the digestive tract, some of that virus again, makes its way um, through the upper digestive tract and gets to the gut. Mm -hmm. Um, There is evidence that the virus can grow in um, enteric cells, what we call enterocytes, and there is evidence that they've been able to detect the genetic blueprint, the RNA of the virus, in in, uh, faecal specimens, for example. Um, We do know from other animal systems, for instance, we know that there are coronaviruses that can cause various forms of disease in chickens, for example, um, and they can uh, do that and grow in the gut. Um, so that's unsurprising. Um, but again, we don't believe the primary mode of transmission into the body is through food. It's still the respiratory transmission. Mm-hmm. And then perhaps the virus can establish and grow in the gut um, because of that transmission, if you like, within the body itself. Mm-hmm. So... You know, I'm thinking about the early on there was a food market in China that found traces on chopping boards and and that was shut. And I think they also stopped salmon imports uh, coming in from Europe as a result. We've seen here several meat factories closed due to staff testing positive. Um, What are we thinking there about um, areas where there is food prepared on on mass or or sold? Um, What are the tips there for for these companies to try and eliminate the, the likelihood that there's any spread? So if we look at the the history of a number of different uh, airborne or aerosol-borne viruses, so um, viruses transmitted via um, the respiratory tract. Um, So prior to COVID, and of course the COVID virus is SARS-CoV-2. So if we look back to the original SARS virus, if we look at um, different forms of influenza, often these have started out um, as, uh, as low numbers of cases 
where the transmission is zoonotic. What that means is from animals to humans. And this has often happened with intensively reared animals, things like pigs and poultry, um, and where those animals are available at live markets. And so it's, it's less about the food, but really about the, the live food animal carrying that virus, that flu virus or SARS, and that being, again, transmitted via aerosol to humans. And once we then get entry into um, humans, we get transmission. And, and luckily, in many cases, the transmissibility of the virus, um, the infectivity of the virus from human to human is relatively poor. Often these viruses are more easily transmitted um, among individuals of the originating species, you know, again, whether it's pigs or poultry. Mm -hmm. And then in humans, the transmissibility may be low, uh, the infectivity low, but sometimes some of these viruses, um, some of the flu viruses, for example, can cause a, a relatively severe disease once it's actually been able to infect. Um, so when it comes to then seeing the virus or detecting the virus on inanimate surfaces, the, the chopping boards and so forth that you mentioned, um, it could be just simply remnant virus from uh, you know, the, the slaughter or butchery of those animals, for example. Um, of course, it could be from people who are infected and, and breathing out aerosols that contain the virus. There's a range of ways that virus may be encountered that way. Um, the likelihood, again, of having the virus on uh, processed uh, meat, such as, as pork or, or poultry, say, in a retail supermarket, is far, far lower than encountering the virus um, with those live animals in that live market situation. Mm -hmm. So I think in, in general now, more people uh, like myself are probably going to be you know, more worried about food hygiene, um, just like we are now about hand hygiene. So you know, going forward, what are your tips for safe food prep, safe food shopping during this time and, and into the future? I think it's a real silver lining uh, in terms of people being more conscious about food hygiene and, their, and general personal hygiene. Um, you know, if we can say there is a benefit to the COVID-19 situation, I'd say that's it. So the fact that people are really thinking about hand washing and sanitation and then carrying those thoughts of hygiene into other practices in life, so around general food hygiene and preparation, great stuff. Uh, so in terms of keeping things clean, I think the fact that people are thinking about I need to clean down my kitchen bench, wash my cutting board well and so forth. That's great. Um, hopefully that extends into thinking about other rules around general um, food handling and hygiene to minimise food poisoning. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's one thing to think about these in relation to COVID-19, but also to extend that um, to general practice in, in life. I think you mentioned at the beginning of the segment that uh, you said perhaps your food hygiene practices were a little haphazard. Um, so um, I'd also like to emphasise besides personal and food hygiene, the idea of keeping things clean. Um, great if we can really have separation of, of function. And by that, I mean that people are thinking about the separation of raw and finished food products. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, maybe having separate cutting boards that are used for high risk foods like meat, and they're preparing that compared to low-risk foods like uh, salad vegetables, which are maybe cleaner, but if we uh, cut them on the same board, are absolutely 
susceptible to cross-contamination. So we want to avoid cross-contamination. So again, it's kind of an extension of the idea of working cleanly, that idea of separation of function. And I guess the other big tip is, of course, around time and temperature. So as I mentioned earlier, the fact that we have to allow some organisms to grow, to develop in the food to a population where they become hazardous, that the risk increases that we are going to uh, experience disease if we ingest uh, those those foods after they've been abused. Um, so this is around things like simple rules like keeping cold foods, cold foods hot, making sure that we're cooking risky foods to the right temperature. So thinking about um, things like um, hamburgers, mince foods, uh, whole chicken, uh, that we're cooking those thoroughly to a good high core temperature um, that is going to eliminate uh, pathogenic or disease-causing organisms. Um, that when we cook a, a large saucepan full of, I don't know, um, bolognese sauce, that we, um, we divide that up into smaller containers if we're not going to consume it, that we get it into the fridge straight away, we cool it as quickly as possible, um, that we keep foods out of what we call the danger zone uh, between 5 and 60 degrees Celsius. Um, which is the range in which uh, various pathogenic organisms can can grow. So a whole range of of ideas and tips around time and and temperature. Again, minimising the time that organisms in a a temperature range that permits their growth. Uh, And the best way to do that, again, keep cold foods cold, hot foods hot, um, and foods that have been cooked, heated, that we cool those as soon as possible if we're not going to consume them immediately.